This is Ardeth Albee, and you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal in this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing to help grow your business. Don't worry about taking notes. I'm going to do that for you, and you can find them at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, I'm joined by Ardeth Albee, and we're going to talk about her new book, Digital Relevance, Developing Marketing Content and Strategies that Drive Results. In addition to being an author, Ardeth is a marketing strategist, speaker, blogger, and self-professed content geek who describes herself as, quote, obsessed with helping companies become so damn relevant that buyers can't help but choose to become customers and, once a customer, making sure they never think of leaving, end quote. She is the CEO of Marketing Interactions, a B2B digital marketing strategy firm. She has over 30 years of business management and marketing experience and has spent the last four years on the 50 most influential people in sales and lead management list. She's also the author of another popular book I recommend, E-Marketing Strategies for the Complex Sale. Ardith, congratulations on digital relevance and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. It's great to be here. So share with us the story of what led to this book. Well, you know, since the first book came out, you know, what I was working on really a lot was helping people convince their executive teams to buy into content marketing, right? So we'd formulate all these strategies and build a business case and do all this kind of stuff. Well, as the years went on, uh, people but did buy into it. So now the calls I get are from marketers who are saying, look, we bought into this whole content marketing thing. We're creating content. We're publishing content. People are reading the content but nothing's happening. And so when I go out and look at their content, yeah, it's pretty good content, but what you notice when you really look at it is quite often there is no strategy, right? So it's just they're publishing content, but it doesn't have the intention of actually helping people to do anything. So people read it and they leave and it doesn't change their behavior. It doesn't necessarily change the way they think about their status quo. There's nothing reinforcing the ideas that companies are putting out there in the marketplace with these people to help them actively take next steps. And so when I started thinking about what was going on in the world today, back when I wrote the first book, social media was kind of a blip, right? And I wrote the book in 2008. So there wasn't a whole lot of social media. Well, since then, look at all the channels we have, all the different um, ways we need to communicate, the different nuances that go on in the channels, how interactive things are becoming. And so, you know, what drove me to write the book was really how do we help marketers become more relevant You know, if you really think about it, when content marketing came along, it got dumped on their plates, but nothing got taken away, right? So they still have all the events, all the other stuff that they were doing. And then content marketing got added and companies said, go forth and create awesome content. Only they never trained anybody in how to do that, right? There's no real definition for what is awesome content? How do you do that? How do you maintain it? How do you scale it? And so that's, that's really why I wrote the book was to help marketers figure out how to put all that stuff together. So it's sort of like uh, they needed some sort of ignition to get all that going. Yep. It's a lot more than, you know, one of the biggest um, 
rallying cries was become a publisher, you know, publish content. And so there was this belief that if they publish content, people would come and people would buy from them. And that's not the case. And especially not now, not with the amount of noise out there, the amount of content publishing that's going on, it's overwhelming. At the beginning of the book, you talk about a study by, I think it was Adobe who mentioned that 73% of marketers feel that marketing has changed more in the last two years than in the previous 50. And that just seems so overwhelming. Well, it is. And, and a lot of marketers are overwhelmed. You know, it's, it, there are so many different things, new channels popping up all the time. But the thing about it is, is a lot of marketers are used to being behind the scenes. They're used to orchestrating campaigns. They're used to working with vendors. They're used to putting pro programs together and executing them, but they're not used to really being on the front lines where they have to actively communicate and interact with prospective customers and customers even about the value of their products, what their products do. Um, you know, what people get from them. And so marketers know their products very well. They know about the feeds and speeds and all that stuff. But what people care about is what's in it for them. What are they going to get? You know, why, why does it matter to them? And so it's a very different mindset, a different dynamic. And while marketers are trying to grapple with all these channels and everything else, they also have to grapple with how do we change the story that we've always told. You mentioned in the book, the problem of marketing campaigns. Can you talk about that? Well, sure. In my opinion, quite frankly, marketing campaigns suck the life out of buyer engagement. And here's why I say that. Marketing campaigns, if you really think about it, are a construct that we as marketers and companies created for ourselves to manage the programs. So we put this nice little neat box around it. And in part of the reason we did it was because we have to report performance or whatever, right? We need to achieve goals in shorter time frames or, you know, one month, one quarter, what have you. But what's happened is that if you have, most of my clients have nine months, 12 month, 18 month buy cycles, a one month or a quarterly campaign isn't going to deliver what your prospects or buyers need in that short period of time. So what happens is you put your campaign out there, you do, let's say, three touches in a sales call trying to convert people, and unless you're really lucky and they're in that right place to make a decision, your campaign isn't going to be successful. But here's what happens. You run a campaign and you start building engagement, right? and people start buying into the store you're sharing, and then all of a sudden it stops. So when that happens, you've halted momentum. So they've engaged with this particular story and that campaign's over for you. So you as the marketer, you say, okay, this quarter we're focusing on this theme. So let's launch a new campaign and you throw it out there and it's a new story. And now what's happened is you've given your buyers the opportunity to say, wait, this company is no longer relevant to me because I'm interested in this first story they were telling. So I'm going to go find somebody else who's telling the rest of that story because I need to get to the solution of this problem. Right? And this is how I relate to it. So why in the world would we want to give our buyers a chance to reconsider the engagement that they're giving to our company because they're invested in the story we're telling? Why would we want to do that? Does that make sense to you? No. And it also marries up with this concept that you explain in the book, which may seem obvious to the listener, but is a big problem where there's this inside out approach that marketers have rather than thinking about the customer. And can you talk about why that's so hard for companies? 
Well, you know, one of the things that I've, I've done before when I'm speaking at conferences is I've asked the audience, how many of you experience your marketing programs as your buyers would or your customers would? And very few hands go up. You know, it's one thing to look at your content in a Word document or, you know, look at the email copy and approve it and think it sounds good and everything else. But the actual experience of interacting with the content, marketers don't do it. They don't sign up for their nurturing programs. You know what I mean? They don't experience it. So they have no idea really what the impact is. Or let's say for one of the problems I run into a lot of times is that you've got the demand gen group, the social media group, the events group, the whatever groups, all of them. None of them speak to each other. And so actually, if you were that customer and you saw the event invitation and the nurture email and the social media stuff and that, you know, and there's all this stuff coming at them, quite often we're overwhelming our own buyers. We don't even know it, you know, but then same thing. If you look across channels and the different types of communications, is the story aligned? Not usually. I've worked for companies where every department has a different set of personas they created and they don't actually align. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about personas because this leads in nicely to it. Can you explain what a persona is and then why it's so important, how it can be used and, and what some companies are not getting right about personas? Sure. A persona is a composite sketch of a target market that... Uh, your products serve based on the kinds of roles and responsibilities they have. So it's not based on a real person. It's based on looking at the commonalities across a target segment and figuring out what those are so you can speak in a more relevant manner to that group of people. So a persona is not defined by a single title and it's not defined by a single person. We have to remember that. And not a demographic necessarily. Correct. The, the only time that I think demographics really come into play is if you're talking very large companies versus smaller mid-size, just because of the hierarchy is different. So the roles vary, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to pay attention to that. But, you know, and sometimes there's some industry or vertical differences. But for the most part, the roles and responsibilities present the same kinds of problems and pains and things like that, objectives that people in those roles are trying to fulfill for their companies. And so when you start dialing into them and you really look at what makes them tick, what they care about, what they are charged to deliver to their companies, and then you start looking about at the other people on the buying committee, and B2B we have buying committees, it's not one person, how do they interact with each other, right? What does one have to um, convince another about and how does that other person's perspective differ? So there's, you know, a set of personas should actually be representative of the buying committee, the different interests that have to all align in order to reach consensus. Now, one of the things that buyer personas should do, in my opinion, if they're created correctly, is they should give you all the input you need to put together your content strategy. And some of the ways that they do that is when you do the depth of research that allows you to figure out what is their status quo, what kinds of questions do they need to ask and have answered along the way as they figure out how to solve the problem that your solutions help them solve. So if you think about the buying process is almost like a Q&A, right? You ask a question, you get an answer, and then you go, aha, okay, now given that I know that, what about this other thing? And so it's this process of figuring out what does that engagement scenario look like? How could we help orchestrate this story, this 
Q&A, if you will, in quotes, that helps the buyer take next steps, the persona to take next steps. And at what points do other personas come in and out of the picture that you have to figure out how do you facilitate those conversations? And so part of the thing that we as marketers are responsible for now is a lot more communication as as buyers can self-educate. So how is it that you put together a content strategy that actually gets your ideas in the conversation, in the room with that buying committee, even if you're not there, right? How do you anchor those ideas with those people and get them to share amongst themselves your ideas, right? So that you're always in the room. That's one of the things that personas can help you to accomplish that's really critical. But the other one, and I think this is also a key point, most often when I go into client projects, there's always a C-level somebody that they're determined they have to engage. Well, quite often when we do our research and build our personas, what we discover is the C-level executive has delegated the research and evaluation down. They are not going to engage with your marketing programs unless you get really, really lucky. So given who they delegated it down to, how can you work through that persona to get them to pass on the strategic information that C-level needs, right? How can you get on their radar? So quite often we have to look at how can personas help us facilitate making connections with people that maybe our marketing programs can't reach? Because if we were to build out that C-level persona and dedicate resources, you know, towards engaging them, yet that's kind of next to impossible, we just wasted a bunch of time and money. So how can we be more effective about that? And personas can help you determine what are the best avenues for doing that. And the book has lots of uh, real practical how-to guides on how to start structuring uh, the research you do. Do you think that sometimes personas are hampered or are less effective because they're developed by marketing people without much input from sales? Well, if I develop them, sales are the first people I talk to. (laughs) Because here's the other thing. I mean, if you think about it, if marketing goes out and creates personas without involving sales, first of all, they're missing out on feed on on the street information, Mm -hmm. right? Salespeople are in conversations. We can figure out how buyers are phrasing their questions, what they're concerned about, whatever, from salespeople. The second thing is, let's say you go out and you create this set of personas and you as the marketing team are just thrilled with them. You think you've done great and you're generating these leads and sales says, these are not the people I want to talk to. Mm -hmm. Where -hmm. are you now? You know, so you have to get buy-in. And here's the thing that I find, you know, really exciting. And most of the projects I work on, salespeople are excited to get involved because marketers never ask you know, them for anything. And so on every project I do, they get excited about it. They want to buy into it. They're hoping they're going to get materials that help them and better leads. And you create this sense of alignment that is traditionally so hard to get to in B2B companies, which is ridiculous. We're all working towards the same thing, right? So well, we're supposed but you to be, have yeah. but you have to have sales involved, I know. You have to have sales involved as well as you have to do customer interviews. And that is the hardest part of the whole persona thing is getting customers to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Or uh, even better than that, to try to talk to a customer that didn't buy from the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That seems like a difficult one to get. Now, that also ties into when you talked about the lower level person that might be doing the research for a big complex purchase, you talk about the importance of focusing on individual accounts rather than just focusing on an individual lead, which I think a lot of companies have done in the past. Can you talk a bit more about that? 
Well, sure. It goes back to buying committees. You know, a lot of times we focus on one person without thinking about this dynamic that there's a group of five, six, seven or more that have to all reach consensus in some manner. Some are more heavily involved than others, but still, if you can't get that consensus, you've got, what do we have now? What is it CSI Insights says that over 50% of deals end up in no decision, you know, or going away? That's your opposition. Mm -hmm. Yep, because people can't make a decision. They don't know how to facilitate the buying process. So, you know, the first thing they're going to do is look internally and say, can we solve this ourselves? What do we got, you know? That's why knowing their status quo is so important because you got to start from, you know, basic ground where they can recognize themselves in what you're talking about and then lead them forward. There has to be that connection point. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you talk about the relevance maturity matrix, and I'm going to include in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com a picture of it. But it has four quadrants, and I thought it would be very helpful if you could just quickly walk through what those four quadrants are. Well, sure. The first quadrant is irrelevance. And irrelevance is for those companies who are still totally product-focused, totally inside-out looking, that haven't really acclimated to their customers, um, You know, who are just constantly bombarding people on social media with stuff that's all about them. Um, sometimes, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of us, when we work in social media, we work from Hootsuite or some kind of dashboard, right? Where we don't actually see our profile. Mm -hmm. If you go look at, it's just like I ask, you know, marketers, if they participate in marketing programs, if you go look at your company's profile, what does it look like? The same title and link posted eight times in the last day, you know? <laughs> me, 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 or, me, me. Right. Or, or are you mixing it up? Are you sharing anybody else's content? You know, I mean, what are you really doing out there? So, you know, irrelevance is that first quadrant. And then we move to what I, I call shifting relevance. And this is where you've realized that you need to change and you're making an effort, and, but you're still sliding back because you're still, you haven't shifted your mindset enough to get totally away from the products. And so you make some progress and then you kind of go backwards. And the thing that's important to understand about the matrix is that you can slide forwards and backwards across all these quadrants because it's it's not like you achieve a certain level of relevance and then you just stay there because everything around you is changing, right? So it takes more work. So once you enter shifting relevance and you start refining your skills, and I have skills that match all these quadrants, each of these quadrants in the matrix that will help you improve um, your maturity. Once you've, you know, are passing through shifting relevance, you develop what I call social relevance. Social relevance is really where most companies will end up. It's being able to do um, multi-channel marketing where the message is the same, you know, is the same or consistent across the different channels. So the story is in sync. It's not fragmented. You know, those kinds of things, more of a real-time responsiveness. And then we have what I call radical relevance. And this is when you've really developed the skills and capabilities and tools and processes that help you be relevant all the time. You know, so you're totally in tune with your customers. You're obsessed with them. You are really focused on them. Everything you do is in the name of your customer. And that's a really tough place to achieve. And the hardest thing about all of this is you can be radically relevant today and shift back a quadrant or two tomorrow based on a new channel coming out, something shifting in the industry, whatever. And so it's one of these things that we have to con continuously work at and continue to develop skills and stay on top of it 
because you know the buyer you're selling to today is not going to be the same as the buyer you're selling to in six months. And so for an example, I read a report the other day that was talking about the percentage of buyers who are now millennials. For those of us who are 50 plus, this is a whole new generation we're learning to speak to with different habits, right? They grew up as digital natives and we have to think about how do our marketing programs resonate with them? You know, a lot of marketers still think about this VP or C-level person as somebody in their 40s or 50s, you know, and even so, now all of us in our 40s and 50s are becoming digitally rele relevant or capable, um, you know, some more than others. But what about these people who grew up differently, using technology differently and have a different outlook on life? Have we adjusted to that? It's helpful, the matrix for people with companies to be able to look and see, ah, okay, that's where we are and that's where we need to go. That's what I found interesting about the, the matrix. Yeah, and, and I'm hoping that with the skills that can help people accomplish these different transitions, that that will help them say, oh, yes, we need to work on this thing. Mm -hmm. Finally, at the end of the book, you tackle the elephant in the room, uh, which is accountability and uh, ROI. And there was one uh, statistic you mentioned from a study by Fournay's marketing group that found that 90% of marketers have no formal training in marketing ROI and that 80% struggle to prove business effectiveness to their executive teams. At the end of the book, you have several chapters that show what are the most effective ways to try to measure the marketing as well as what not to focus on. What's been the reaction to that so far? It is an interesting problem. And the one thing that I still see is that marketers are focused on the stuff that doesn't tie to business objectives, right? The opens, the views, the clicks, nobody mm -hmm. cares. Fans. You know, yeah. Nobody cares how many people are following you on Twitter unless they're buying stuff from you. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is critical that marketers learn is how to tie what they're doing to business objectives their executives care about. We need to, you know, it's just like when you're on the board of directors for a company and you're expected to be financially literate enough to understand a PL, not to create one, but to understand one. Marketers have to take that same approach. They need to become literate in the business objectives that the executives care about and figure out what impact do our programs have on those things and how do we talk about it in a way that makes sense. Make friends with your CFO, you know, figure out how to tie those things together. But the other thing that we need to really think about is if our buying process or, or our customer's buying process takes nine to 12 months, yet we're expected to report monthly or quarterly on prog progress we've made, how do we do that? What are the things that are built into our programs where we can show progress against business objectives? And how do we line those things up and make the case in a way that our executive team will say, this is great, tell us more, and that actually drive, help drive corporate initiatives. I think as marketers develop these skill sets and become really the customer advocate inside the company, that they are going to become the strategic force inside the company because they will have the insights that will matter in how you drive growth for the company. That's right. And I think it's the last page where you of the book where you predict that marketing will become the business driver. And there was an article in Forbes just last week that I'll link to in the show notes. It talked about how more CMOs are going to become CEOs because of the skills that they're 
increasingly required to have, they're going to be great jumping off points for being a CEO. Mm-hmm. I, I can see that developing. I think it's a, a ways out. I think companies have a lot of work to do. But, you know, I think I'm seeing great strides in what's going on in some areas. You know, it's a really interesting time to be a marketer. I, mm-hmm. I'm thrilled with the whole thing. It's exciting. It's fun. Lots of challenges and lots of ways to prove impact. It's definitely not bo- a boring time for marketers. No, it's not. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, let me just ask you a few other marketing book questions. Are there any marketing books you've read recently that you recommend? Uh, one of the books that I truly loved that came out, I think came out last September, is Anne Hanley's Everybody Writes. And one of the reasons is because all of us have to become writers, and a lot of marketers never have been writers or haven't been really good writers. What I love about this book is that Anne is funny. If you know Anne, you know she's funny. Well, she's that way in the book. It's mm-hmm. a very, it's very witty and um, fun and challenging. And the way she talks about writing, she gives you a lot of great information, but it's in a way that you can absorb it and apply it. And because writing has become such a big part of what we do or what we're responsible for overseeing, at least from an editorial perspective, I think it's, it's a great book. And I think everybody should read it. She's been a guest on the show, and it was a lot of fun. And as I mentioned to her, I was laughing out loud so much when I read that book that my wife said, what are you reading? <laughs> I know. But I can't it imagine is. a more difficult book to write a, write a book about writing, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a great book. Yeah, and for people who aren't diehard writers like me, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's easy to embrace, you know, and even for me, it was fun to revisit because, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time reading books like that. And it brings back some, you know, reminders of stuff that are so easy to forget. Are there any marketing books on your upcoming reading list? Well, there are, and I'm cheating because I've read it, but it comes out in March. <laughs> and it's uh, Experiences, The Seventh Era of Marketing, written by Robert Rose and Carla Johnson. Mm. And uh, Robert did a mini keynote at Content Marketing World last year that was the best damn keynote I've ever seen. It was only 20 minutes, but it was so exciting. And what they're talking about in the book is experiences and really the next frontier for us as marketers is how do we really contribute to creating those experiences that make a difference. It's not just about content. So it's almost giving marketing a more 3D kind of look, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is really fascinating. It's an excellent book. Like I said, I cheated. I've read it (laughs) and gave it a great testimonial, but it comes out in March and uh, I would recommend people read it. Well, he's going to be on the show and I have seen him speak. He is a fantastic speaker and I'm really looking forward to speaking to him and reading his book. Uh, Which marketing blogs do you enjoy following? You know, this is an interesting question because blogs, you know, I used to have um, a reader, you know, where I filed all my blogs that I read. And since I've become so active on Twitter, I have, I follow groups of people, you know, I have lists of people that I follow. And so I don't regularly read a specific blog anymore. I read topics. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for topics, anything that's exciting or interesting that touches on something I'm thinking about or, or working on is what I click through and read. And so it was funny when I, when I knew you were going to ask me the question, I kept thinking about it. I thought, well, I read a lot of blogs, you know, and then I thought, but I don't read them all the time. I read them when I see something come through my stream that's really interesting to me. 
it's sort of a crowdsource curation approach that you mm-hmm. have. And Anne Hanley mentioned the same thing. She uses uh-huh. Twitter a lot to determine uh, what she's going to read. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's interesting. How can listeners find out more about you and your book? Well, my website is marketinginteractions.com. And the book Digital Relevance is on Amazon. And I also have um, a book page on my website um, that includes other podcasts that I've done about the book and the introduction text to the book and um, some other reviews that aren't on Amazon. So if you want to learn more about it, you can go there. And everything about me is either on the website or on LinkedIn. Okay. And for those marketers that buy the book, they are going to need to get a new highlighter because I used up (laughs) one going through this. Arda, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I hope your audience finds something useful. Well, that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything mentioned are in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And while there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter so you can get notified of every new episode, show notes, links, resources, free stuff. Also at marketingbookpodcast.com, there are about 20 free marketing ebooks on a wide variety of topics that you'll find helpful. Thanks for the iTunes reviews. They really help increase the show's visibility. Recently, the Marketing Book Podcast was listed in iTunes as the number two new and noteworthy business podcast. I was so excited I issued a news release, which you can see at marketingbookpodcast.com. Finally, I really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Lots of great suggestions and feedback. To send a message, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Contact Podcast button. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Till next time. Well, I really enjoyed the book. Well, thank you. And then I looked at your LinkedIn profile and saw that you were also an English major, and that explains some of it. <laughs> yes, it does. I've been a writer since uh, fourth grade, according to my mom. <laughs> well, don't stop, please. <laughs>